Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padamaru, and Ben Gracer, back in the dark on the data mining team. It's episode 37. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. How our draft week went, announcements, card of the week, seven win run breakdown, our main topic once again presented by Hats on Lamps, who, oh, by the way, is back on the show this week. Hello, Hats. Hello. Which is defensive drafting, avoiding train wrecks, and then we'll review a draft. So to begin with, Hats, how was your week? Uh, It was pretty good. We're at the beginning of a new month still. We're one week into it, and I'm in master's rank again. I'm at rank four right now, and I've had three seven-win drafts in a row, so I can't complain. That's <laughs> that's fine. I'm okay with it. Uh, I had kind of a rough start to the month, uh, which means that I'll probably have to work pretty hard if I wanted to rise any higher, but uh, once you're in the top 10, it's fine. Like <laughs> you're, you're good. I yeah. mean, especially because I don't know if you saw that they announced today how the qualifying points work for draft. Uh, I did, and I don't know how I feel about it. Um, I I like the fact that I have a pretty good shot at making a bunch of these imaginary points. Uh, I don't I forget exactly how important the points are, like on an individual basis. But I know if you're in the top twenty, that you get the a big chunk of them. I think it's going to make it more stressful to play if you're on the bubble for sure. Uh, if I'm ranked something like twentieth through seventeenth near the end of the month. I'm going to be freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be like, oh, God, do I play a draft now? If I play a draft and it goes badly, then I've I've screwed myself. And if I play it and it goes well, then I've got to fight to stay on top of that tiny little hill. So So it's kind of funny because it's all for a giant draft tournament, which funnels into a constructed tournament. (laughs) Yeah. And I will be lost if I have to play Constructed because I just don't have any skills there at all. I'm okay at copying other people's decks and playing them. I only do it to keep a little bit of gold going and get the free pack every day so that I can draft more. Um, but I don't have like a broad range of skills in Eternal. I really just like Limited. Though LSV always says about Magic that if you're good at Limited, you're probably okay and constructed like a good limited player makes a better constructed player than a good constructed player makes a good limited player that's interesting yeah i think that's probably true i think i'm not good at building decks in constructed uh, Mm -hmm. because having all of the resources in the world is uh is is confusing and i don't know why i'm making certain picks over others when i try to put together my own decks yeah. But if I am working off of a uh, of a deck that somebody else made, I can play it well technically. Like mm-hmm. I know how to play something relatively optimally once I pick it up and understand how it basically works. Right. So maybe maybe I'll be able to make the transition. I don't know. Also, I'm counting my eggs before I hatch. Maybe I'll just lose interest in the game entirely before the big constructed tournament. And it's a it's a long you know it's a slog to the world championship. Many months in between. How was your draft week? My draft week has been pretty good, too. I think my last two drafts have been seven wins. Actually, the draft that we're about to review um, later on was also turned into a seven-win draft. So 
I've been feeling really good. Like, um, I, you know, I don't have the volume still. We're still working outside a lot. <laughs> There's still a lot of work, though it's getting really cold here. So that's slowing down. So hopefully my draft volume can go up a little bit. But I think between doing these episodes and reading Discord, fairly good understanding of the format and that has been showing in my draft results so let's go on to our announcements where we first thank our patrons so so every week we thank our patrons who uh, help support the show financially and really make it possible and worth doing and give me at least one excuse to tell my wife on why i spend so much time (laughs) on the podcast so first off uh, i'd like to thank all our patrons so Titus Blossom, Parmalee, Tokut, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Cassandrath, Jed the Homerid, Raven Dragon, Esrich0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yistout. Thank you again for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And then, yeah, the only other announcement that I was going to make was about the, the new draft qualifiers stuff, but we sort of already went over that. But every month starting in November, so last month, and constructed last month counted, but it's starting in November for the, you can start earning draft qualifier points and uh, you get it, you get five points for being in masters, more points for being in top hundred, and then even more points for being in top 20. And then I think you need uh, 80 points in total in order to qualify for the draft masters challenge. And then at a, there's another threshold where you get a buy into day two. For those of you who didn't play in the last one, the qualifying was a little different for the last one. You just had to be top 100 one time in the six month period, but at least how they did it last time, because there was about 400 something people qualified. The first day was sealed. And then the top 64 with sealed records then went to a draft on day two. And the draft was a little weird where it was everyone drafted at the same time, but it was the same asynchronous draft environment, all the people drafting at the same time. And then you were paired up in a bracket against other people. So you weren't drafting from the same pool, but you still played against the other people in the top 64. And then it was best of three. And then at top eight, everyone redrafted. Again, even though there was only eight people, it was once again, you drafted at the same time, but it's the same asynchronous draft things. And then the winner got to go to the um, world championship. In this case, the top four gets to go. So we at least have, we'll have more drafters in the world championship this time than last time. But it was a really cool tournament. Ben actually got top 16 last time. So it was really fun to watch him do really well. It's fun to have, I think, a really competitive draft format like that. And best of three, which you don't really see, so you get to kind of see your opponent's deck a little bit. You didn't get the sideboard or anything, but you could at least know what to play around a little bit more. Sure, you can play around tricks and so forth. Exactly. I would prefer it if they made if they made it better. Uh, I would prefer <laughs> <laughs> like what you're saying about them draft, drafting asynchronously, but, but playing against each other. Uh, really, if you're playing for a championship, uh, it sure would be nice if they could be put on an equal power level, because that's the thing about asynchronous drafting is uh, the cards simply might not be there. 
Whereas in a in a live pod where you're all drafting from the same pool, the power level tends to even itself out across all eight people. So it's a it's kind of a shame they're doing that, but they would have to program a whole new mode into the game basically if they wanted to simulate an actual draft pod. Though, you know, they've had a lot of time since the last one to sort of figure the technology out. So here's hoping someone's working on it. I was just saying an overview of what happened last time. They have not really given any hints on what it will look like this time. So I'm I'm still at least slightly hopeful. All right, shall we move into card of the week? Sure. Okay, so what's your card of the week? My card of the week is Ruin. And yeah, I'm excited to hear about this one because you did post a seven-win deck list with Ruin in it. It was playing one Ruin, and it was very good in that deck. Uh, I don't. I'm not saying that Ruin is a great card, but I do think it's an interesting card to talk about, uh, specifically in this format. Uh, Ruin is in the curated draft packs. It's not in Flame of Zolta, and I believe it's one of the cards that shows up three times as often as the other cards because I I see it pretty often, um, and I don't have the list memorized, but uh, I'm almost positive that it is. So Ruin is a one power spell in fire. It's a fast spell that destroys an attachment. Normally in a draft format, that's a very marginal card that you don't want to main deck because you can't win games with attachments alone. I mean, you can, but it's very unlikely. And so uh, the the number of attachments in a deck is probably going to be something from four to seven, maybe. And that means there's only a few cards in your opponent's deck that you can destroy with a Ruin. Uh, and that's not a good enough reason to have one in your deck. You want cards that can kill units. You don't need cards that kill attachments specifically. However, in this format, uh, there may be a critical mass of attachments that you do need to kill. Uh, what with all of the curses, there's a lot of cards that just sort of create curses uh, as a side effect of what they do. There's an entire curse synergy deck. Um, weapons are very important in this format because of mastery. And, uh, of course, exalted units create a weapon when they die, which is another attachment that can be killed. And if you have a one-power fast spell that kills any of those attachments, it's almost like hard removal, especially if you use it on an exalted attachment. So when I was thinking about this after I decided it would be my card of the week, I, I thought, how many games in this format do I play where my opponent plays no attachments? Mm -hmm. And that's a very small number. And then the next question is, is it worth a card slot in my deck to kill the attachments that my opponent plays? In, uh, meaning, are the attachments that my opponent plays threatening enough to me that if I don't kill them, it's the difference between me winning the game or not? And often it is. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of cases where, uh, where they just Voltron something up and I can't deal with it on an individual basis and I don't have an Eviscerate or something that could kill a unit by itself. But what I can do is take the uh, take a weapon off something as it attacks and block it with something that is larger. So I don't know how often you want to actually play Ruin. I think if I have enough attachment removal on stronger individual cards in my deck, like if I have a Ruination Sledge, which is a weapon and attachment removal. Mm -hmm. um, Are there any other good examples of that? Or are you specifically thinking of Ruination Sledge? 
It's it's there are uh, there stronghold vandal is still in the format. The two power three one uh, fire creature you can shift it for three and destroy an attachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the classic. I don't remember what it's called, but it's a four three fire creature for four that kills an attachment when it comes into play. I don't think it's one of the boosted cards, so you won't see it very often. But it is right. in the format. And silence is sort of an ersatz attachment removal in some cases. So mm-hmm. and there's a lot of silence in the in the format. So I'm I'm not going to feel that much pressure to put a ruin in my deck if I'm in time because there's better ways to to solve those kind of problems, like silencing a a, a unit with a um with like a a weapon that gives it flying or something is just as good as as taking away the attachment from it. However, the deck that I played that had a ruin in it had a lot of large units by themselves without a lot of special abilities. I had a couple of those 6-5 Onis for 5. Uh, I had a lot of weapons that made my guys naturally bigger. So I was going to win combat if, uh, in most cases if it was just straight up with no tricks. Right. Which meant that the way I was going to lose games is if somebody um, attacked me on an axis other than straight unit combat. Which means unkindness, uh, which is an attachment that makes 3-1-1 ravens on the turn that you don't play a unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means uh, putting something with lifesteal, uh, putting an exalted uh, attachment with lifesteal and flying or some combination of those things on a unit that I can't remove. That kind of thing. That's how I'm going to lose games. And having Ruin in my deck gave me an easy out to all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. So it turned out to be very good, that draft. Almost every time I cast it, it was mid-combat where my opponent thought they had an advantage. Um, but it turned out that my units were superior once whatever weapon or attachment or curse they were using was out of the picture. So I'm not saying draft ruin super high, but don't discount it as a card that's potentially playable if you have a deck that can use it without sacrificing card quality too much. So it's obviously never never the case where you would put that in instead of a removal spell. You need a certain amount of interaction in your game. You can't just throw down units and hope to win. Uh, And if you can't get high-quality interaction, then you have to start looking at lower-quality interaction. I don't think Ruin is a bad choice in that case. It's interesting with your your second question. I agree with your first question, where you said, like, how often is your opponent playing an attachment of some sort? And I would say that is almost every game. But then, even more so in your case, where... If you think of all of your decks that haven't had Ruin, and you're thinking of how many times has my opponent played an attachment that I needed a Ruin to deal with, or else I would lose, it's, like, very low. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, because you win a lot, despite the fact that there's no Ruin in your deck. I know, like, this is a weird way, but, like, that's how I feel, because I still haven't gotten to the point where... Every time my opponent plays an attachment, I'm like, oh, do I wish I had a Ruin? But I guess I just, because I would never think to put Ruin in my deck, and then I I think about my drafting, and I'm like, oh, but I do pretty well without a Ruin in my deck. So how much better would it be with a Ruin? And it's... <laughs> it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the answer is to that. I just think that you have a lot of resources when you're drafting 
mm-hmm. that you that it's it, it's easy to not use a lot of the resources that you have in drafting uh, because you're a good drafter, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 just you figure out which the good cards are in the format. You figure out the strongest archetypes. You you kind of get a handle on it, and then that can lead to a, a state of mind where you're not using all the possibilities that are presented to you. And sometimes when a draft doesn't line up very well, uh, which leads into the main topic that we'll be talking about later, um, you can overlook various ways of of saving your draft or right. making a mediocre deck strong. And I think Ruin is a pretty good example of the kind of card that can make a mediocre deck better um, because it deals with a problem that you otherwise have no way of dealing with. And it has a surprise element to it that will sometimes win you games by itself. I agree. I guess maybe that's where I'm not thinking of it correctly is that I'm just thinking like in most of my draft decks, I would just rather have another 2-2 two, two for 2 instead sure. of a Ruin. But I think there are decks where, you know, like Ruin shows up late in a pack that maybe has no cards of your color. You take a Ruin at the end of the draft. You're actually a little short on playables. Some of the fire cards you have or whatever other colors you're in are not very good then maybe Ruin is actually above replacement level in that kind of deck. Yeah, okay. I, I'm I'm by I'm actually when you posted the deck list and said how well it was doing, I kind of got excited to to at least give it a shot in my next deck, which is probably actually not the way you should play it. Yeah, you should that's not, not how I that's not what I'm encouraging anyone to do <laughs> <laughs> is to try it immediately no matter what. Uh <laughs> Just to keep the option open. Uh, well, I obviously haven't gotten there, but uh, <laughs> I'll I'll temper my my uh, expectations of how great Ruin will be now based on this conversation, and hopefully get into a correct place. I did while you were talking. Look it up, and of our 225 decks, we've had uh, five copies of Ruin appear. Uh, that's not bad for a mediocre card like that. It's definitely under sort of replacement level in our spreadsheet but it hey people more than you have drafted it and gotten seven wins that no one can deny so i think kind of going on this theme of bad cards yeah i wanted to talk about journey guide that is a fantastic example i hope you you mean a bad card as compared to slightly playable like ruin might be i do i do mean a bad card yeah absolutely I, the reason I want to talk about this, this is me back to using Card of the Week as a little bit of a soapbox, but I have been seeing this card all over the place, and my opponents have been playing a lot of them, and I feel so great when my opponent plays a turn one journey guide. Yeah, it's good for you. Because <laughs> it just it's not a card that I think does anything. In only the most like specific decks, like tempo and like the co- The cost of a card matters so little after a certain point in the game that, like, the benefit of having your cards you draw cost one less is so negligible compared to the disadvantage of playing a one-cost O3 in your deck. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Maybe it's just better to play another Sigil instead of the Journey Guide. Yes, Almost because always. I agree. And I think I think it feels good, but 
It's like when John Holy and I talked about uh, brush fang and how you could like construct a scenario that if you played this card on turn one on the play, it could possibly be good. And I feel like Journey Guide is the same way. Is like if you play this card on turn one and then have your perfect draw, you're like, wow, you're really doing it with Journey Guide. But the chances of that happening are so low. It's not it's not worth it putting it in your deck for these like best case scenarios when most of the time it's doing absolutely nothing for you. And it's not helping you win the game at all. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I do think that Journey Guide is even worse now than it was in the last format. Okay, how so? Because it is a 0-3 body, and there's a world where you might want to use the inconsistent ramp that it provides um, while blocking with it. Uh, You could block a couple of things with two attack for a few turns and then play the large units that you're planning to win the game with. And I think that that was a strategy that worked uh, on and off uh, inconsistently in in the last format or the format where it was introduced. I actually don't remember when it was last in the format um, or when it was like they started. There were all of the Inspire cards kind of got introduced at the same time, and it was one of them. That was set five. That was set five. Okay, so that was two uh, draft environments ago. But. I, I remember it being sort of fringe playable in that format uh, because it was okay as a defensive card. In this format, it's terrible as a defensive card because everything has mastery and it's and they're happy <laughs> to attack into a zero three even if they don't do any damage that turn because mm-hmm. they add two to their mastery and that's the hatch face whatever it's called the dragon the two two dragon the teething whelp uh, gets to attack for free. Um, the Spike Tail Kieran gets to attack for free. Doesn't matter that you blocked it effectively because it, their your opponent is still advancing their game plan. So mm-hmm. even the small benefit that a zero three has of being able to block something with two attack is useless in this format because all of the good two attack units in this format want to attack into zero threes. It helps them. For those of you keeping score, Journey Guide slightly more appearances than Ruin. With um, and so it's about half replacement level. So once again, with our normalized sort of metric, where you want to be at a one, a one is this card is about as good as a random common in that color. Journey Guide is about half as good as a random common in uh, in time. So not a great card. It's not showing up in seven win deck lists either. Is what I'm trying to say. Because our listeners are smarter than that. So now we'll move on to our seven-win run breakdown. So this is our long-standing data collection project here at Farming Eternal, where our listeners email us or send in their seven-win drafts to farmingeternal at gmail.com or post them to our seven-win channel of the Farming Eternal Discord, where you can send them in exported deck list format or as a EWC link. And then we take all this information, we put it in a sp- spreadsheet and then we are able to draw conclusions from it because that actually what the spreadsheet does is it it actually breaks down what cards are in the decks and so we can um you know get a count of what cards and do a little bit of math figure out what cards are doing well what cards are not what um factions are doing well what factions are not and allows me to say things like we've had five ruins in our 225 deck lists 
So this project would not be possible, first off, without John Holio, who's now entering all the ducks in. So thank you, John, and all the contributors. So one of the fringe benefits of that is I get to read your name on the podcast. So our new contributors this week is Craig of Canada, who is coming from Hearthstone. Pretty exciting. Uh, Humble Ice and Stevie London. And then our veteran contributors are Abednego, Abarash, A-Boss, Agent Dynamo, Beard Broken, Collector, Darth Herman 2, Dubes, Eric Fills, Gato Sujo, Godlight, Great White, Hats on Lamps, Jed the Homerid, Cassandrith, Marshall, Mercio Blue, Murder of Crows, Nothership, Old Rich, Out on a Limb, Patomaro, PKTT, Raven Dragon, Rofer, Spiffy, and Starstorm. So thank you all for sending in your lists. And then the other thing we do in this uh, segment is we kind of point out a few things that sort of have caught my interest in the spreadsheet. So last week we talked about the, te- the top 10 commons in set seven. Now we've gotten a bunch more lists, so I felt a little bit more confident, including some of the draft pack cards, because even the boosted ones uh, show up a bit less than a set seven common, just because the draft packs, even if you take into account that they're boosted, are sort of just a bigger pool. So in order, uh, once again, sort of head and shoulders above everything else is Gradov's favored in draw strength in sort of a class of their own. Then I want I want to read these next uh, four. You can include draw strength in this list and. Just tell me if this paints an image of a deck in your mind. (laughs) Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So here's two through five. Draw Strength, Minotaur Oathkeeper, Oni Patrol, Oni Stalwart, Warbrush Oni. Uh, Yeah, I think those may go together. Uh, (laughs) It's... (laughs) uh, I'm not surprised to see that. uh, That Justice... Fire uh, aggro uh, with an Oni sub-theme is a strong deck. It is really, really good. I've had a couple of Oni decks come together for myself, and there are a lot of um, ways that that can create a strong deck. It can be super aggro. It can be a lot of Onis. It can be a few Onis. The fact that Justice has so many good combat tricks and Fire uh, between the two sets has so many uh, just sort of strong, aggressive units makes it so you can't go wrong if you if that lane happens to be open for you. And some of these cards work remarkably well together. Like Warbrush Oni into Oni Stalwart is a very hard thing to stop because now yes. you've got a 2-4 endurance monster that gets to grow once it attacks safely twice. Yeah, you half the time it takes to hit Mastery. Yeah, it, it improves the card immensely. Warbrush Oni is at its best when it's improving cards that have high uh, defense and low attack because it makes a huge difference in how effectively they're able to get in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one card that kind of jumps out at me at that list is Oni Patrol, which it's obviously, I think, fitting the theme that you talked about. But in set six, you know, Oni Patrol, I think, was just not a very good card. I think it's almost more of a constructed playable card in like an aggressive fire deck as compared to in draft where it's uh, you know playing a a one power three two 
but not on turn one, I think is slightly less impressive. And so it was kind of an underperformer in the last format. So I'm really surprised that it is doing so well in this current format that it's in, you know, it's the fourth most sort of effective common for its deck, at least based on our spreadsheet. I'm a little surprised to see it that high because I don't think it's usually the best card in that deck. But if you're in that deck and you have Oni Patrols, then you play all of them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you want one-drops if you're going to be playing an aggressive deck, and there aren't that many strong one-drops. Minotaur, Oathkeeper, and Oni Patrol are two of the best ones in the format, so you're going to play all of them. Yeah, I never know how I feel about, like, because you you would say the exact same thing about Warbrush Oni, and it's not like they're that far off in the in the numbers so they they actually do compare pretty well but it's it's interesting to me that for some reason these cards are making it into seven win deck lists over other sort of comparable cards and you know one of those cards one of those reasons and we talk about this a lot on the podcast is just maybe like there's these cards that maybe don't obviously I mean, this obviously fits the only strategy, but aren't as obviously powerful and so kind of fall into better drafters' laps a little bit more. I think the main point is that I think the Oni deck is real and people are having a lot of success with it and it's showing up a lot. And you can kind of see this in our top 10 commons. So uh, next, we sort of fill out this top 10 list with cards that more normally appear here. Uh, there's the Immortalize, which I think we can all agree is, is the it's the first shadow card and is a very powerful card, especially with its decimate ability. And then uh, Eviscerate and Conflagrate uh, are two sort of removals on the list. And then the top, the 10th card is Makar's Bloodwolf, which again is also a little interesting because once again, you know, our top, in the last few formats, the top 10s have often been dominated by very powerful units and then removal and i think makar's blood wolf is a pretty good card but it doesn't it i think it doesn't come across as like a great card or top 10 card no it doesn't it's a it's small for its cost it has a good ability that doesn't affect the board it has lifesteal and uh, it does have you do have to go through a little bit of work to make its mastery go off, uh, especially because it's coming out on turn three and it's going to be a lot harder to attack safely with it right away, uh, as opposed to some of the other mastery cards that come out on turn two and can and get a whole turn to to start on their mastery that Blood Wolf probably doesn't get. But it's such a good meat and potatoes card for Shadow. Like I like, kind of like I said about um, Oni Stalwart last week, Blood Wolf is just a good three drop, and you and that's the heart of of any deck that you're drafting. So and you're you're gonna cut it very rarely. So every Shadow deck that uh, that is good is gonna have a couple of Blood Wolves because there, not? there's not there's not a lot of cards that just outright replace it. Yeah, though I feel like I've never. Pl- really had a this card in my deck before yeah i, I, I cut guess... it all the time from my decks honestly because i just uh my strategy isn't to for that deck isn't to grind out a long game uh with lifesteal uh, but to do something a little bit more proactive but if i feel like my deck doesn't have the strength to win proactively and i'm going to be doing more like long-term value stuff then blood wolf's pretty good especially if you have an immortalized because uh decimating an immortalized on blood wolf gives 
a two three lifesteal weapon to something and that is basically an unstoppable threat yeah it's uh, like the justice weapon it's worth more than six power so all right and then finally um we like i said we had uh 225 decks so far and um Justice and Time are still in the lead. The breakdowns are still pretty close. The one thing I wanted to do is talk about the percentages a little bit. So first I wanted to ask you, Hats, do you consider this a two-color format, a three-color format, or somewhere in between? And sort of to which end is it leaning, do you think? Somewhere in between, I would say. I've changed my mind about this a couple of times. Uh, I was more comfortable drafting two colors near the beginning of the format, and then I started to realize that it's not actually that hard to splash. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not as hard as I originally thought it was. So I feel a lot more comfortable drafting three color now. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I don't think that it's... I, I think our last format where where we had strangers at common and that made it very easy to splash while still putting a unit on the board. That was, uh, I think that was a three or four color format a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, I think this format really rewards these strong two color decks like Combray and Rakano. So uh, I think it's I think it's very rewarding for two color decks, but also but I I wouldn't be scared to draft a th- a three color deck ever in this format because I've had so much success with them. Yeah, and the the reason I mention that is because when you talk about like your faction breakdown and what percentage uh, each faction is, you know you really have to think about how much how many colors the average deck is, and so if every deck that we received was two colors, then you would expect if all the factions were equal, everything would be 40% across the board. And then if all the decks were three colors, everything would be 60% across the board. So keep those numbers in mind, because you know what this sort of means is dependent on how many colors you think like the average deck uh, would be. And so right now, uh, Justice and Time are at 60% of our decks, Fire's at 50, Shadow's at 39, and so far only 28% of our decks that we've received has had any Primal in it. And so the fact that this is closer, I think, to a two-color format means that like Justice and Time are and Fire are all sort of overperforming what you would expect, and then Shadow is sort of right on sort of like an average color and then primal is almost is not doing very well and i think we kind of knew that it's this very similar to last week shall we move on to the main topic so the main topic uh let's see what did i title it uh defensive drafting and avoiding train wrecks i don't know if this is something that you've covered in the past because i feel like defensive drafting must be something someone has said before i don't i don't actually know if we've talked about this stuff specifically yes so i thought about this i thought about what what i wanted to talk about uh sort of based on what we talked about last week where we were talking about the uh, where we were working through a draft of yours and talking Mm -hmm. about the picks and you didn't feel good about the way that the draft was going at that point in the draft and um i felt like it was pretty normal for a draft it felt like this is how most drafts go they feel kind of uncomfortable uh a lot of the time Mm -hmm. Uh, there's times when a draft 
it just sort of lines up like you make a couple of uh you make a speculative pick on a, a longhorn which is the the three three Combray unit two that just dominates the early board and is one of the big reasons why Combray decks are so good in this format and then the draft almost almost picks itself and anyone can make a good draft when they when that happens but I don't think that's the majority of drafts. I think most of them are pretty difficult. And they're difficult because of the asynchronous drafting system. Because there's a ripple effect when someone starts making weird picks in asynchronous drafting. If someone at the beginning of a pack decides, I'm going to just take the most powerful card from any faction uh, and not uh, commit to a color right away, then that means that powerful cards are going to be missing from each pack thereafter and signals are going to be confusing which means mm. the person going after that person is also going to be struggling to take powerful cards without knowing what factions they should be in and then that just continues down the line to all 12 people who are taking cards in this asynchronous pod and so you basically just have 12 people in a room trying to shake hands but poking each other in the eye mm-hmm. so I, I, I guess I'm, it's not clear to me what the the fact that it's asynchronous has to do has I guess to do with that you're right i guess that's true in a regular draft pod as well however i do think that there's sort of a cooperation that takes place when you're physically drafting with people mm-hmm. that doesn't happen quite as often with asynchronous drafting and this mm-hmm. may be just a feeling of mine but it's one of the reasons why i didn't get into eternal when i first discovered it because i was used to drafting magic the gathering and uh, even Magic Online would give you a permanent pod of eight people, and it felt like signals usually were pretty clear. You could tell what colors you were supposed to be in by the end of the first pack. I always attributed that more to the wheeling of cards. Uh, that's fair. Yeah, uh, that's that's definitely a factor. So it's not the asynchronous drafting so much as the fact that you don't wheel cards. Just basically the whole system <laughs> feeds into yeah. that feeling. And I think... Maybe this here. I'll I'll say some of my speculative stuff too, so we can be in the same boat. Okay. Um, <laughs> where I think one of the differences too might just be that the skill level. You have no idea where your packs are coming from, how good or bad they are, or what they're doing. Whether they're rare drafting, not rare drafting, and in a game like uh, MTGO, where you might think the same thing could happen, but First off, people are, I think, in general, probably a higher skill level who are joining queues on MTGO because it's a more self-selected crowd than in draft. There's also, it's also harder to draft sustainably on MTGO, right? You have to spend money more often because you can't get free currency in the game. Exactly. And in real life, you probably know the people or you know the environment and so you can have a better sense of what people are doing or what kind of drafters you're playing with which you also can't get in eternal so i the the point being is i i agree with you there there does seem to be a reason that it is harder to read clear signals in eternal than in the different forms of magic that i have played i got a fourth pick a soothing short beak the other day uh that's the that's a three one flyer for three that uh that 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 summons a minus one minus zero curse on two of your opponent's creatures that's an objectively powerful card in one of the best factions uh it reached me fourth 
I have no idea what three cards you would take above that. <laughs> yes. I don't I have no idea what people's priorities were leading up to that, but that draft was a seven winner for me. Yeah. <laughs> because people were passing me for thick short baits. That's the other weird thing I think about Eternal Draft is because there's no wheeling. So you're by the time you get to that last pick, you know, eleven other people have passed that card. And so it is always surprising when someone gets to last pick like a a pretty playable card because it, it almost seems like less likely to to happen that out of 11 people like not a single one of them is in the time faction or whatever and and cuz someone like for example on discord just mentioned being able to pick they picked a 12th pick spike tail kieran yeah i've seen that happen myself multiple times and you're just like there's literally 11 people in a row are not in time. I just can't imagine a draft with that happening. Yeah, some mixture of people that don't know Spike Tail Kieran is a good card or refuse to go into time for various reasons. Like, how can 11 people do that? But yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, somebody took a cruelty over that, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, so... um. Yeah, so how did you want to sort of break down this topic? I have I have some bullet points here. Uh, it's a very broad topic, and it, I think uh, so. I haven't been able to put to put this together into a really coherent, uh, overarching viewpoint. But I have a lot of general thoughts about how to minimize drafting disasters. So I'm going to just discuss them as separate topics, and hopefully together they will. Uh, make a kind of general sense together. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think that we all understand the feeling of, of being in a draft that's going south and is in the midst of wrecking. And so all of these topics are going to be about mitigating the damage of that situation and also not giving up partway through a draft. Because I don't know if this has happened to you, but sometimes something inside me dies midway through the second pack, and I'm kind of done with that one. <laughs> and I have to remind myself, no, you can still salvage this. It's okay. Yes. I, yes. I notice that in myself when I just start snap picking cards based solely on what color they are. Exactly. When you're in that mode, and I've been in that mode, and I think everyone who drafts Eternal has been in that mode, um, it's very difficult to be making the optimal picks based on all of the factors uh, that go into making a, a card pick. And it's hard to end up with anything but a mediocre deck when you do that. But it's understandable because you want at least to have a playable deck and you want your factions to have enough cards that you can actually put 28, 27 cards in your deck and, and, and put them on the board when you actually play your games. But I think that you can do better. And so that's what this topic is mostly about. Not you specifically, but everyone. So point number one, understand the potential of your good cards. Um, and I want to use the Evangels as an example of a card uh, that is good, but has even more impact on the game uh, than, I th than I think is obvious. So the Evangels are 2-2 two, two units for two. There's one in each of the five factions. They each have a combat ability, and... Um, each one of them has a, a fate ability where when you draw it, it automatically gives you one pip of the faction associated with it. 
um, and they all take two of that faction to actually summon into play. They are good cards because they are two drops uh, that give you something to do, which is usually on par with what your opponent is doing. Um, and they also make it so you can play your more powerful cards on curve more consistently because they're giving you the influence to consistently play your cards. What is not so obvious is that they also make splashing a third faction easier. And I don't mean that you want to play an Evangel in your splash color. Uh, you would rather play just a nut. Like, let's say you are splashing Primal um, and you have a Linrai Evangel. That's the, that's the Primal Evangel. Don't play that to make it easier to splash that color. You might as well just play another Primal Sigil for that. Mm -hmm. um, however, if you have in your two main factions, let's say they're Justice and Fire, if you have a Justice Evangel and you have the Fire Evangel in those colors, it makes it easier for you to splash because you don't need as many sigils in your two main factions. For example, a pretty typical uh, uh, situation would be that you're, you're splashing Primal and you have, say, two Primal cards that you want to play and you'll, you'll need, say, four sources of Primal Influence for that and you don't have any fixing. Uh, you, so you need pr four Primal Sigils and that leaves you with 14 cards for the rest of your power base and assuming you have an even split of fire and justice cards, that's seven sources of fire and seven sources of justice, which is not great for your mm -hmm. main factions. But if you have uh, some number of evangels, that goes up to eight, which is a lot better. If you have one justice evangel, then you've got eight sources of justice. If you have two, you have nine. Um, and that's a workable power base. Seven is pretty dodgy, but eight is much better, and nine is 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 good. So when you're taking evangels early, which you should because they are solid cards, you're enabling a splash later indirectly. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about them, and I haven't seen anybody else talk about that. What's interesting to me is that, because in the last episode, I kind of got the impression that you were lower on evangels than the average person. But... Now you're extolling all of like the extra advantages of Evangels. Yeah, well, my my understanding of the format and of individual cards evolves as I play. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I like about Evangels is that I have been experimenting more with uh, with three color decks, and I've just noticed that having a couple of Evangels just makes my life a lot easier when I'm making those like when I'm making uh, splash picks. They are still two twos for two. They don't have a lot of board impact on their own. So I think it's important to remember that. They get outclassed very easily in this format. But if you have more uses for them than just being a two two for two with an ability, then they get a lot better very quickly. So I think that they're a good base. Uh, they're a good safe pick mm -hmm. because they have that extra effect on the game. Um, if you have cards that make other cards better, they're good picks to have early because they don't put pressure on you later to figure out ways to play your good cards. Speaking of uh, not putting pressure on yourself. Ooh, these lead into each other really well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, point two, don't put pressure on yourself. Uh, I think it's fairly common in draft to feel... Uh, like you need to pick up more of a certain type of card, whether it's a particular cost for units in order to fill out your curve, 
um, or removal or something else. And there's always a point in your draft where you stop taking the most powerful cards in a vacuum and start trying to make a deck. And I think you want to delay that point as long as you can because you want to be playing all of the powerful cards that you see and you want them to be effective in your deck. You can do that by filling in gaps earlier in your draft rather than making the most powerful pick all the time at the beginning. And uh, I think I can make an example that's specific to this draft format because this has happened to me. In the first pack, if there's a lot of weak picks, I will end up with a lot of expensive cards and also two drops. So I'll have Grodoff's Favored, or I'll, I'll have the Longtail Cavalry, I'll have maybe a, a Living Mountain, I'll have five drops and six drops, and then I'll also have two drops. Maybe I never saw any three drops. Um, and at that point, uh, maybe uh, now I have a lot of pressure on me to get those three and four drops so that I have something to do on those turns. For the rest of the draft, I'm probably going to have to figure that out. Plus, I am going to have to cut some of those five drops and probably some of the two drops later anyway. You can mitigate that effect by sort of being brave and taking less powerful cards instead of continuing to take the good five and six drops. Uh, it's a little bit of a weird thing because Grodov's favorite is such a good card that you just want to play all of them that you see. Right. Um, so, so don't. So this advice isn't take something over Grodov's favorite. The advice is always take Grodov's favorite and then use all of your other draft skills. <laughs> um, and and also all of these all of these tips are for situations where the draft packs aren't strong and you're having to make the best of a bad situation so uh my example here is that you have a bunch of five drops and you see a pack that also has a strong five or six drop but also there's a card like say rent seeker which is a four power three three and that's not a great stat line for a card it has sort of a marginal ability where if it gets mastery six that it uh it casts a curse of taxation which reduces your opponent's uh, maximum power that's pretty good if you can get it off but it's a four power three three so it's hard to attack with it without help however it might be a good idea to just take it not expect to necessarily put it in your deck but to have a four drop you have something that you can do on four and that means you have one less pick that you have to spend on filling out the middle of your curve later which means you have the freedom at least once later in the draft to pick up a really strong card instead of taking a three or four drop because you just don't need them for your deck. This isn't something that you have to do often, but I feel like it's easy to get to a state of mind where you never do it, where you decide, you know what, Rent Seeker is too bad of a card to ever play, and I would rather die than, than waste a pick on it. But I think more damaging to a draft overall is to be in a situation where you can't take something like uh, something like a Sapphire Dragon because you desperately need to fill out the middle of your curve. I agree with all of this. I still have trouble accepting doing that like in that first pack, mm -hmm. but it's one of the reasons that I like to talk about like at the end of each pack, really taking a moment to assess your situation. You, you know, because like you said, especially in this format, you can end pack one with a lot of five drops and a lot of two drops because there's a lot of good five drops and there's a lot of good two drops. And you need to 
be aware of that going into pack two and pack three and let that influence your decisions accordingly so that when you're in pack later on, like you said, you don't, you aren't forced to in pack four all of a sudden really taking power level hits to fill out your curve because you took the time to review your draft and review what what gaps needed to be filled beforehand. Yeah, I think the natural time to do that is at the end of pack one. Um, and I, it's it feels really weird the first time you look at a pack with, uh, say, your fourth five drop, but it's mm-hmm. definitely a better card than the week four drop you're looking at. It feels weird to take the four drop in that situation for sure. But I usually feel like it's a powerful pick. It feels like it opens up the rest of the draft for me. And uh, again, I can't recommend doing that all the time. And I'm not recommending uh, that you do that all the time. But if you start looking at drafts a little bit more holistically uh, and and where it's not so much about each individual pick and maximizing the power of each individual pick, but instead giving yourself uh, the freedom to make better choices later, uh, it starts to make more sense. Mm-hmm. No, I, I like that final explanation of that. That was that was good. Yeah. Point number three. I see. Man, you you led you left little bread trails throughout this whole podcast. <laughs> so yeah, that's mostly an accident. But <laughs> so see the potential in weak cards. Yeah. So, have we spoken about any cards like this? Yeah. Uh, Ruin is a good example of that. And I think it was useful talking about Journey Guide because uh, we looked for the potential in it and didn't see any. I think it's useful to at least talk about it. Uh, But uh, for this, I want to talk about a draft that I had recently. It was a seven-win draft. Um, It was the last draft that I did before the one that I'm currently working on. And it was the first uh, good muster deck that I've drafted, I think. Uh, I got into it because the first pack was just absolutely terrible. It was all over the place. The signals were impossible. And so I ended up with a lot of marginally playable cards. But some of them had a theme. I had a, a fairly late pick Yeti Traditionalist. Yeti Traditionalist is a four cost, three, three in primal. It takes two primal influence for some reason, even though... That, that seems really unnecessary. It's not a strong enough card that it should, uh, but it does. And I had a Wanderlust Kieran, which is the the one-two flyer in, uh, in time and primal for two. Uh, both of those have muster abilities. Uh, and I also had a Crowd Queller, which is a two-one spellcraft uh, relic weapon and that I think casts a like, flash grenade. And that's not a great card. Uh, but it does activate muster if you have six power and you activate the spellcraft. So those were on those were a theme. I wasn't planning to go into muster because those three cards by themselves are not a strong deck, but I was leaving it open in my mind. Uh, and then in pack two, other than opening Timmy Expedition Guide, which is a legitimate bomb. Oh, yeah. Um, but other than that, the packs were pretty bad, but I did start seeing a few spellcraft weapons, and so I decided the only way that I'm going to be able to salvage this is if I start going in on muster a little better. So, there was a pack with nothing in it, except it had a Cobalt Scholar. Cobalt Scholar is a 0-6 for 4. That's the worst stat line I can imagine. But it has a Renown ability which means if you put a weapon or, or, a, or cast a spell on it, it creates a cobalt ring, 
which is a relic that can loot. You can discard a card and draw a card uh, when you spend three on it. It creates uh, a cobalt ring when you activate its renown, which means it activates muster uh, if you activate its renown because it creates an attachment, if you cast a spell, that is. And so I thought, well, this is not a good card, but I have a draw strength and like there's other spells. It activates muster. So I drafted it and it ended up in the final deck and it was good. Uh, because it served the function of being a free muster activation if I ever cast a spell on it. Uh, it was something to put spellcraft weapons on if I needed a gigantic blocker. And also, it does block. Uh, six defense is really hard to get past. And this was a deck that needed a lot of time to get set up. Because I, had, I ended up with three Yeti traditionalists uh, and a bunch of spellcraft weapons. And it, that takes some time. You have to put down the Yeti Traditionalist, and then you have to put the Spellcraft weapon on it, and then you have to like do all of this other stuff before you can even start winning. So I needed to make those games long, and it worked. I got seven wins with that deck. It went 7-2 uh, with a Cobalt Scholar in it, and a mm -hmm. Crowd Queller, and also an Emerald Acolyte, which is a 2-1 uh, for three that gives you three armor when it comes into play. And I was splashing for it. And <laughs> and that was, again, just a card to make the game go longer so I could get the rest of things set up. It worked. It worked seven times. Yeah, I, I, I actually really liked how you framed this, about how it's good to, you know, how, where we started about with the journey guide, where one of the, I think, the most important things is talking through cards and thinking about cards and thinking about how cards could fit different strategies and you know one of the ways i do this not to keep plugging stuff that we do is but like with the spreadsheet and just like i just kind of scan through it see what cards are doing well and you know and we had that like great discussion last week with oni stalwart where you know a lot of people think that that's a weak card but the fact that it's appearing so much means that you know there it fits in places and just thinking about why cards are doing well or doing poorly i think is an, another example of this yeah i think it i think it's good to not only rate cards and and understand their obvious synergies but to to really understand why they're good and the potential for them to be better in specific circumstances mm -hmm. I bring up Cobalt Scholar because it's such a good example of a card that I considered completely unplayable for a long time. And then when it came along, I was proud of myself for seeing its potential in the deck that I was currently drafting. Exactly. No, I, I agree. I, I don't know if it is a boosted card or not, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were. Just for the muster synergy, yeah. Just for the muster, you know... Direwolf sometimes makes it really hard, but there are usually <laughs> reasons yeah. why their cards are boosted or in packs, even if they're not always obvious to the average person. It's usually because there is a deck they think is there. You know, every card more or less has a purpose. So sometimes finding out how to, you know, take make the best use or using cards in ways that you haven't thought about is just very important. Uh, I think having faith in them as good designers is, is definitely pays off. Uh, mm -hmm. But they still make 
weird choices a lot of the time. Let's just talk about Cruelty for just a minute, because it's the most hilariously bad card. Cruelty is a three-cost primal common in Flames of Zolta. Uh, it is a fast spell. Is it a fast spell, or is it not a fast spell? It's a regular spell, right? It's a regular spell. Not even a fast spell. It puts, the, it puts a curse on a unit uh, that forces it to attack every turn, and if you decimate, which, let's remind everyone... Uh, reduces your max power by one. <laughs> it also does two damage to that same unit that you're telling to attack every turn. Yes. It's a card that does so many things and it does them all terribly. I agree. It is the craziest card. It's <laughs> okay in one single deck, and that's the muster deck, yes. because can trigger muster with a single card, and that's even without its decimate ability. Funny, because I've drafted so many muster decks that no I have drafted a lot of cruelties, but it is it is a crazy card. It is a card that I'm like always excited to play, but only because I have green stretch empaths in my deck, yeah. and not because it's even close to a playable card. It is the cheapest way to activate muster in one card, I think, mm-hmm. uh, on a common. There's cheaper ways, uh, such as Sodi's Choice, uh, to, to activate muster. Um, but I think it's the best way to do it on a common. And I guess yeah. they were probably afraid that it would be too powerful to make a good card that could activate muster for three power. So they made a very, very bad card. Because the I... fact that it caught, that it makes a unit attack, but in its uh, alternate form does two damage to it is just absurd yeah <laughs> i imagine that had to have been a late change like it had to have at some point done two damage to a different unit because the the two abilities just make absolutely no sense together but they synergize with several of the uh, other themes in the set uh such as spell damage and decimate yeah they would still do that if it could hit something else Oh yeah, they would. It would. It's it's still not good as a card concept at all, but I think that was the intention was to make yeah. a, a bad card that could synergize with a lot of different strategies, and it just ended up being a super super weird card. Anyway, I guess I guess I wanted to to uh, to get another example of a of a card that's obviously bad in, but I don't need to uh, talk about it at length. Uh, but a card that I'm I'm interested in experimenting with is Fragility, which is the two-power curse that makes a unit die if you do damage to it. And mm-hmm. I've found that whenever I'm drafting Primal, that there's quite a few cards that do a little ping damage in the set. Uh, there's, uh, there's the Slingshot in the first set, there's Belligerent Yeti, there's Ice Bow, and it's pretty easy to get enough of those where Fragility starts looking like hard removal. All right, so let's go on to point four, which is Make the Safe Pick. And uh, I, I think this is a little bit redundant with uh, some of the stuff I've said earlier, so I'll, I'll just reiterate. Uh, a lot of my personal train wrecks happen because I make too many speculative picks in the first pack, and I'm not able to play enough of them. And uh, it's just something that I'm prone to because I like to take the powerful cards and I want to play fun decks with a lot of synergy, and sometimes it doesn't work out. But if you make safer picks, if you just get a solid curve of units you have the skeleton of a deck that you can hang other cards on later, so it's a stronger way to draft. It's not necessarily the correct way to draft, because sometimes those speculative picks do pay off. 
if you pick a bunch of good Onis in the first pack, it will pay off a lot in the second and third pack. But uh, a good example of one of my pet cards that I think is a safe pick that's not necessarily always the most powerful pack, uh, that's not necessarily the most powerful card in a pack, is Aspirant's Robes, which is uh, an uncommon, so it's not even going to kind of come up all that often. Uh, but it is a 1-1 uh, weapon for one that creates uh, a 1-1 cultist in your hand. And if you spellcraft it for, I believe, four, it casts patience on your opponent, which is a curse that raises the cost of all of their cards in their hand. So that's not mm-hmm. a curse. It's a permanent effect. It's a card that does a lot of things, but unlike cruelty, it does them okay. For a one-cost card, it's pretty good. And it fits into a lot of strategies. It creates a unit that you can sacrifice. And there are some pretty good sacrifice synergies in this set. If, you're, if you end up doing Xenon, um, then it's an excellent card to sacrifice to Marsh Dragon. Uh, it is good with Mastery because it gives that extra point of attack to a Mastery unit. And a lot of Mastery units ha- uh, can achieve their Mastery a turn earlier if they have one extra point of attack. And it activates Muster all by itself. So it's a card that will probably end up in your deck if you're playing time. And also it's not an effect that can be replicated in any other card because it does what it does in a unique way. So I am prone to taking Aspirant's Robes earlier than I probably should because it's such a reliable card to include in my deck later. I think this is a good way to to think about cards because sort of like what we talked about with cruelty before is there are a lot of these cards in the set that are better than cruelty but also are trying that fill like little roles in a a bunch of different decks and aspirin's robe is a really good example of it you know some of the mastery cards are too because there's no real just like mastery deck i think in draft but a lot of these cards are oh this is a pretty good card and what do you know when it gets mastery it does this little extra thing that helps this other deck uh kind of like you were talking about the one that does the curse of taxation rent seeker it's like it's not a great card it's a playable card but hey if you have curse synergies all of a sudden you know you're getting a little extra bonus on your marginal card and that's you know that kind of having cards with that kind of versatility can actually be um you know very helpful so point five then is uh don't be afraid of cheese and this is uh less of of a defensive drafting tactic and more of a hail mary tactic uh because sometimes you're going to end up with a train train wreck no matter what you do because that's how the packs line up and uh, you need to be aware of of strategies that are less consistent um, and that you uh, are never looking to get into, uh, but are nevertheless capable of winning games. So one of my favorite cards to hate in this set is Yeti Griffin Rider. It is a two power one one in Primal. It's in the worst faction and it's tiny. It has Berserk and it has Flying, however, which are very dangerous abilities to have together. It means that if you put a big equipment on it or if you get a big draw strength on it, it can do a massive amount of damage all by itself. Uh, Which means if you have a few small flyers and you have a few ways to make them big suddenly, 
you can legitimately blitz your opponent uh, in a way that they can't really plan for. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a card in there's a card in the curated drafts which uh, is uh, Thunderbird. That's a two-two flyer with Aegis for three. Uh, that's a great thing to put a weapon on because it's so hard to stop. There's a there's a few cheap flyers that you can put equipment on, and it's possible to put together a deck that's just little flyers and ways to make them dangerous. That's an easy strategy to stop if your opponent has the right cards for it. Uh, but as anyone who has uh, let a let a two-turn unkindness pop on them and had to deal with three 1-1 Ravens at the beginning of the game and then just loses to them because you don't draw the right cards to deal with them, knows little flyers near the beginning of the game can sometimes just win. Yeah, I, I think this is a good backup plan. It's... I mean, it's not quite the same because this was just a good card, but it's like sometimes when your deck's not going going the way you want it, picking up a few cannons or whatever can really turn yeah. a draft around. And I think the same is true about these like little little cheesy ways to win. And there's just like in this format you mentioned, there's just like a lot of little flyers, and it turns out that's just like a surprisingly reasonable strategy. Yeah, and uh. We always want to play decks that are consistent and have a really solid game plan and uh, play cards that don't rely on other cards to be good. But we've all been beaten by opponents that seem inexperienced or weak as players, but who nevertheless will are willing to go all in on a marginal strategy. And because you don't have an answer in your hand, you get beaten by it. And that's mm-hmm. not an illegitimate, illegitimate way to win. It's not what we as skilled drafters want to do, but you can't ignore the fact that you sometimes lose games to it. Yeah. You want to have that in your tool belt if you need it. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think this t- really touches on what we talked about last week is sometimes you just, you need to make them have it. It feels like they always have it, but they don't always have it. <laughs> no. That's the black box theory of playing uh, of playing card games like this, right? Your opponent's hand... This is a term that I heard about Magic the Gathering and control decks. It, when you're playing uh, an aggressive deck against a control deck, it feels like your opponent's hand is this black box full of answers. And no mm-hmm. matter what you do, they're going to be able to stop it. But that's not reality. All of their cards are just Magic cards, and they only do one thing. And they might not have the answer to whatever you're doing. And then uh, what is your final point here? Well, my final point is too big to talk about in any depth. And it's also something that I'm just starting to think about. And uh, so I haven't thought deeply enough about it to really be thorough about it. Uh, But I think it's worth bringing up because it's a good way of drafting defensively and safely and giving yourself a lot of options uh, as the draft unfolds. And that's to be aware of the faction relationships uh one of the most obvious uh one of the most obvious ways to illustrate this is in the factions justice shadow and primal uh that's the combination that you want to draft if you're drafting curses because the curse matters cards such as misery walker which is the the card in um justice and primal that is a two three for three with no abilities if there's no curse in play but it has lifesteal and flying if you do have a curse in play. All of those cards that care about curses are in uh, are in Justice and Primal, but most of the good curses are in Shadow. 
So it's good if you think you might be playing the curse deck to start uh, taking cards that let you splash for shadow, such as insignias um, and seats and other methods, because you're probably going to have to play shadow. Uh, you might be able to put together the curse with just primal and justice, but it's uh, you're in a much healthier position if you plan ahead and start taking shadow cards. And but also, what is also true of that color combination is that there is a lot of decimate synergy because all of the decimate synergy is in Argentport, is in Justice and Shadow. So uh, there are cards that will fit into both of those decks. And if you find yourself taking cards that will fit into either a curse deck or a decimate deck or which are just good cards, there's a lot of crossover between those two highly synergistic strategies. And if you take cards that could conceivably be played in either one of those strategies and then go into one of them harder as the draft progresses and you see what's available, uh, you can put yourself into a good position early. The, I guess this isn't so much about, uh, about salvaging a train wreck, but it sometimes feels that way because you won't have a direction early on in the draft and you may have to take a few weak picks. But if you take a few weak picks that could conceivably be in a stronger deck if it comes together, you want to be taking picks that will be in a lot of different strong decks if they come together, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think it's very similar to, you know, your point three, which is see the potential in weak cards. Sure. This is sort of expanding on that in a way of one of the things that helps you do that is to do your homework yes. and see what combinations work well together so you can see how different cards actually can help with the different um the different strategies and fit in different strategies and to sort of sum up everything you've been saying is like all of these points just real really touch on flexibility being flexible in your drafting seeing the flexibility in cards valuing flexible cards higher and just sort of in the drafting process just being very nimble and being able to change your strategy if you pick a couple strong cards switching that's one form of flexibility picking weaker cards that are very flexible is another form of flexibility and then picking faction pairs that work well together is like yet another form of flexibility Yes, even if you don't have cards that specifically work well together now, if you're in fa a faction pair where those kind of cards exist, you are setting yourself up to be able to take them later. Yes. So no, I think that is a very great point to end on. So we're going to move on to the draft here. This is a draft that I did earlier this week. So pack one, pick one. Uh, cards in contention. There's uh, Edict of Kodash, which is the Justice Edict, which if Emblem. you have three Justice influence, you can decimate it and draw a 2-1 flyer for three. There is a Tide Caller, which is the three primal 3-3 three, three, that when you muster, you play a 4-4 four, four, has charge that sacrifices itself at the end of the turn. There's a Borderland Lookout, which is the one time 0-1 that gains plus one, plus one for each of your opponent's factions. And then there's the Oni Forge Mark Scrivener, which is the three justice two, three, that mastery two plays a plus one, plus two weapon. And then uh, later on plays weapons on all your Onis. 
And then there is a Shavka Evangel and a Fervent Siphoner and a Warbrush Oni, I think, kind of round out that pack. So what are you thinking here? I would probably take the Emblem of Kodosh here. Oh, yeah, Emblem of Kodosh. I screwed that <laughs> up. Uh, I agree. I, th- I took the Emblem. I think the Emblems, maybe for newer pay- players, are sort of deceptively powerful cards. They're a power card later on can be more than just a power card. Yes. And the fact that these uh, actually come into play undepleted is makes them even more powerful, I think. Yes. Coming in undepleted is great. They do ding you for a, a point of damage when you play them, but I think that's uh, a negligible effect most of the mm-hmm. time. Yes. And so they're very similar uh, to in the previous format, we had the standards, which transmuted after after a certain point. And these actually, you know, they don't transmute, so you will always get your power, but you at any point can choose to decimate and draw a card with them too, which is uh, pretty interesting. It is. I think they're very flexible cards, and that's that's why I like taking them as early as I can. Yep, and so I took the emblem here too. So then going into... Pack one, pick two. Uh, cards in contention. There is an Eager Offering, which is the three-time 04. There is a Dragon Forge, which allows you to... It's a three fire, and it allows you to draw a dragon or a weapon from your deck and reduce its cost by one. There's a Makar Bloodwolf. There is an Oni Stalwart and Immortalize are the, I think, the cards in this pack that jump out to me. I would probably take the Immortalize here. I think the other best pick is probably Oni Stalwart. Uh, Eager Offering is definitely a a reasonable card, but I think that it is narrower, and I would play it in fewer decks. Like, I'm not happy about getting an Eager Offering if I'm playing an aggressive deck, so I just think of it as a narrower card than Mm -hmm. some of the others, even though its effect is perfectly good. It draws two cards, and then it blocks three damage. It's good. But I just don't think it's as versatile as some of the other cards. Immortalize is just an unusual effect. It's one of the only cards in the format that does anything like that. And I'm not worried about getting enough three drops in this format. So Oni Stalwart is a great card. I've I've really changed from last week, haven't I? But (laughs) I'm not worried about getting effects like that. Right. I I agree. And um, so is there no consideration for Dragonforge? Oh, Dragonforge. Dragonforge uh, is, it again, a powerful card, but narrower. And so in the interest of taking generally the safer pick, I, I, would, t- I would take Immortalize over Dragonforge. Yep, and that's what I took too. So right now our pool is the Emblem of Kodash and the Immortalize going into pat- or pick three. So cards in contention here. There is a Funeral Pyre, which is the deal two damage to an enemy. Decimate, deal two damage to an additional enemy. There's the cruelty we've been talking so much about this podcast. There's in, a in contention. <laughs> there's a swaying sea Karen, a Shavka Evangel, and an, an acclaimed artisan. So what are you thinking here? I don't think this is an easy pick, uh, but I think it's between Shavka Evangel and Funeral Pyre. Yeah, and that was sort of what it was for me too. I ended up picking the Funeral Pyre, mostly because I've been I've been wrecked. Paying three to do two damage has is not very impressive to me. But the fact that it's one of the few like potential two for ones, I think raises it up a little bit. And I I kind of gotten got blown out by it a couple times recently. So moved it up in my own pick order. 
Uh, I think it's also a, a good idea to point out that there is no removal in the Flames of Zolta at common rarity. Mm. Uh, at Soul's Fury is Soul's Fury is the common removal for for fire in Flames of Zolta, and it's a fairly narrow card itself. It's playable, um, but if you don't have fodder for it, it doesn't feel good taking it. And that means that uh, the, there's a lot of pressure to get all of your removal from set two and three if you're playing fire. And so a card like Funeral Pyre is actually a lot harder to get a hold of in this format than it has been in others. I, I think that definitely feeds into the the feeling, you know, because it, it feels weird paying three for this when, you know, at one in the last format, it still wasn't like it, it, it wasn't a great card. So... At three, it feels like it must be a bad card. But I think the Decimate ability really helps it a lot. And then, as you said, the fact that the removal is so much worse in Fire in uh, Flames of Zalta that sort of we talked about earlier in the episode. Picking this takes pressure off your later picks, which is a good thing. All right, so we are actually three for three here. And then going into pick four, uh, Cards in Contention. There is a Shavka Evangel, there's a Marsh Dragon, there's a Linrai Evangel, and maybe a Proselytize? Some people like that card. I haven't had a lot, a lot of luck with Proselytize, uh, but I can certainly imagine decks where you would want to play it. I just haven't ended up in the Praxis token deck ever, so and and I don't and I haven't really ended up in the uh Called the, and I haven't ended up in the Xenon deck either, and I feel like it would be at its best in, in those decks, uh, and I just haven't ever drafted them. I'm sure yeah. they exist, but I just it just hasn't happened for me yet. Yeah, I'm actually in the, uh, the very same position. Um, so for me, it was really the two cards that I was really debating were the Shavka Evangel and the Marsh Dragon. Those are the ones that I'm looking at too. And here I would probably take the Shavka Evangel, uh, for some of the reasons that I was talking about earlier, because it gives you more freedom later. Marsh Dragon gives you less freedom in a weird way, because you can't play it unless you come up with some sacrifice synergies. You can play it, obviously, but it's a much weaker card if you don't have those. I went the other direction. I think the reason I took the Marsh Dragon, which I agree is actually a less, is a potentially more powerful card, but a less safe pick, is a lot of people are really high on Marsh Dragon, and it has not always worked out for me but it is a card that i i keep wanting to try because i feel like i must be playing it wrong for it to have not done a lot for me despite people having so much success with it i think that's an excellent reason to try a card if you haven't played with it that much you need to get a hands-on sense for it so yeah yeah in that case it's absolutely the right decision mm -hmm. and i have had a little bit of luck um recently with uh stone scar dragon so have I. Base decks. And so I was I, I was riding that a little bit, and so I took the Marsh Dragon here. Okay, so now going into pick five. So as a reminder, uh, the cards in our pool, we have the Emblem of Kodash, an Immortalize, a Funeral Pyre, and a Marsh Dragon. And then we're going into pick five, cards in contention. There's a Nahid's Choice, an Omri's Choice, and a Shavka Evangel. So what are you thinking here? Uh, well, I am thinking Shavka Evangel. Elmry's Choice is a more powerful card. 
mm-hmm. but we haven't seen uh, any indication that time is particularly open. There's a cult recruiter in this pack and an ardent convert, but it's pretty easy to imagine people not taking those simply because they're not uh, powerful cards. Yeah, this was a tough choice for me um, for that reason, because Omri's choice is, I think, one of the most, one of the best cards sort of in the common uncommon pool. And it's in the two best colors, or at least my my two favorite colors, and uh, the, oh, two the two most best colors. colors. Yeah, <laughs> and the two most winning colors in our spreadsheet. So it seemed really hard to pass that up, and it's pretty late. I'm kind of actually surprised it made it fifth pick, but it's that, I also it's that dual faction thing. People often won't move in on even very good uh, dual faction cards. I think if it had come along earlier, I probably would have taken it over a lot of the other picks we've seen here. So I also took the Shavka's Evangel here, uh, trying to be disciplined. In the next pick, I picked a Warbrashoni. Then there weren't really a lot of great cards. There's once again, and like I said, this keeps happening to me. There was a really late champion grappler, which always confuses me and then screws up my drafts because I always want to play that. And I'm never sure what's going on with people that you get it like 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th pick. I don't know. I would take it here and then be ready to abandon it if I don't end up in time because it is that powerful. Yep. And that's exactly what I did. And then I rounded out the pack with a couple more, you know, really bad primal cards. So going into pack two, feeling very stone scarish right now. I got a couple good fire cards, a couple good shadow cards. I do have the emblem of Kodash and Justice. And then I have the uh, the champion grappler, which kind of like hints a little bit at time, and then some really bad primal cards that I'm not very excited about. So then going into pack two, pick one, with that in mind, cards of contention. There is a crystallize as the rare, which is I think uh, a really great card. And then there's no really great fire cards. There's only. A Blazing Renegade, a Softfoot Burglar, and a Caleb's Favor. As far as Shadow, no really good Shadow cards either. There's a Back Alley Bouncer and an Amethyst Coin. Uh, there's no good Time cards. This is just an overall bad pack. But there is a Seek Power. Yeah, no pack is bad if it has a Seek Power in it. So that's what I did. Uh, I took the Seek Power. I did not... I think Crystallize is a very powerful card. Uh, game-ending card, but it's a lot uh, to move in on if you if you don't already think you might be able to play primal. It is double influence. Exactly. So then, um, pack two, pick two, uh, cards in contention. There is a grenade, which is the three fire sacrifice a unit to deal three damage to a unit and three damage to the enemy player. There's a cobalt coin. There is a Renegade Valkyrie, which is four Rakano, one, two, flying double damage. There's a Ravenous Thorn Beast and a Seek Power. So what are you thinking here? Ooh, it's I don't think this is an easy pick. I do like Grenade. It's a good card, but you don't have any specific sacrifice synergies really yet. Uh, this is a good example of a time when it's easy to start putting pressure on yourself. You have a Marsh Dragon, and you have the option to take something like Grenade or Ravenous Thorn Beast here, but then you have to come up with 
cards to sacrifice to them mm-hmm. or they're not going to be very good so i'm wary of doing that kind of thing and uh grenade's not that great it is nice to have removal but it's three pa- it's three power for three damage and usually the damage to your opponent is uh irrelevant if you're not playing a very aggressive deck so there's a real possibility i would take another seek power here and 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 stay very flexible I kind of had the same thoughts where there's some good cards in my colors, but there's none of them are bombs and they do put pressure. Like you said, like both of them fit cards that I already have, but not in the sense that they're an enabler. They sort of lead me down a certain deck in a certain color, which is even more narrow. And the Renegade Valkyrie, I think, is a good card. I don't have any weapons yet. So, uh, you know, it's always hard to take still an early, you know, a Rakano card when I'm not even, I didn't really see any late justice cards. I just have the emblem. So, yeah, I took the seek power. I thought it let me stay the most flexible. And I was hoping that it would let me sort of splash a little bit easier and still give me more time to figure out what route I wanted to take. And I think with a couple of Shafka Evangels and the Seek Powers, you're in a really good position to play whatever you want outside of fire. And then the final pick we'll go over is pick three, uh, Cards in Contention. There's a Seat of Glory here, which is the Rakano Seat. There is a High Alert and Eviscerate, and that's about it. I think that's an easy Eviscerate. Yeah, yeah, so I took the Eviscerate here too. And uh, this deck ended up being kind of interesting. I um, was a little bit low on playables, but I had a lot of dragons, and I got some pretty good removal. I got I had two eviscerates. I had a cremate, soul's fury. Managed to get two immortalizes of bare arms. So there were a lot of pretty powerful cards even with the seek powers and three other sort of dual influence um, powers i had double influence in all three of my colors which was a little nerve-wracking uh injustice i ended up playing a fourth tree elder just because it was such a powerful card but the deck i i I think i just drew very well because the deck played really powerfully and uh yeah it looks, I mean, it looks good to me. So it went seven wins? It did. It, it went seven wins. It had, um, I managed to pick up like a manufacturer and stuff to go with all of my, um, I had two Marsh Dragons. I ended up later on picking up a Ravenous Thorn Beast. I picked up two Totas, picked up a Razorwire Totemite, a card I'm not very excited to play, but I figured out with all my abilities to sacrifice, I also had the Soul's Fury that, I would give it a try in this deck, and it wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. That's that's about where you would expect it to be. Yeah, and I mean, playing a turn four Ravenous Thorn Beast and making it a six six quick draw, not too bad. Oh. It's you know the one problem, the one weird thing about it is it's like a little less exciting to like make your Marsh Dragon have quick draw. It's a little less relevant there. Um, not irrelevant, but you know so. Uh, I think it's a good example of a card where if you're in the sacrifice deck and you feel like you need a certain amount of stuff to sacrifice, it's an acceptable card to use for that purpose. But there's better cards. Well, cool. So that's uh, the end of our draft and the end of our show here. So 
Thank you once again to all our patrons for making this show a success. And for those of you who are not patrons, a way to help out is to give us a five-star rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And also joining us and being active in Discord. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And then finally, uh, please thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts about the show. And don't forget to send all your 7-1 deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. You can say bye. Oh, bye.